I was in, in, in a different way, but I was in as bad a shape as Chris was. And that if I didn't do something that I was going to be, it was going to be damaging to me, my health-wise. And I got involved in therapy again. I, I, I had a course of cognitive behavior therapy that gave me a really difficult opportunity to take a real look at the things that terrified me and explore them and come to an understanding that I I could not control his behavior. That and Alanon helped me realize that his journey was his journey and that I couldn't control that, I couldn't fix him, I couldn't make him get well. The best thing that I could do would be to try to get as well myself as I could. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Hopestream. If you're parenting a teen or young adult child who's experimenting with drugs and alcohol or who's in active addiction, treatment, or early recovery, you're in the right place. I am Brenda Zane, your host and a mom who has been there. So just take a minute to exhale, know you're in good company, and just know this is your place to soak up support understanding and get some really great information. You can learn more about me and the work I do to serve parents like you at brendazane.com. Well, I feel like I have given birth to another child because after many months and a lot of labor, we've officially opened the Woods community for men who are parenting or co-parenting a child who struggles with substance use and mental health. And this is a community that's similar to the stream, which you have probably heard me talk about here before. It's 100% created for guys, hosted by a dad who has been through the experience with the intention of supporting men and giving them some actionable tools, some space to talk, and to be real when life is probably feeling a little or a lot out of control. In this episode, you are going to hear from Bill Guy who is a battle-tested dad, a parent coach, a life coach, an all-around amazing man whose mission is to help guys not experience what he did. You're going to hear why he's so passionate about helping others. And we also talk about the unique nuances of what men experience when they have a son or daughter or a stepchild who is using substances in an unhealthy way. We know it is the most frustrating scary and confusing thing to go through. And for guys who are in it and feeling helpless and angry, this is your episode. And if you're a mom listening, you are definitely going to want to share this episode with your male counterpart. Let them know we have a limited number of founding memberships to the Woods community. Those are available at members.thewoodscommunity.org. We'll also put a link to that in the show notes if you can't remember it. And they can learn more there and get signed up. And a founding membership is a full membership. It's just at a very greatly reduced price so that we can get some feedback and some learnings from those founding members on what they want, how to make it great. So there are a few of those available at a very reduced price. And I can't wait for you to meet Bill. So let's take a listen and I will see you on the other side.
Well, Bill, welcome to Hope Stream. This has been a long time in the coming to um, put together all that it takes to um, bring together community, to find the right people. So I'm just so grateful to have you here today. So welcome. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here today, too. Yeah, so we're going to talk about a lot of things. Obviously, you've um, joined myself and um, a few other people who are working behind the scenes on really creating a safe space for guys to come together around this kind of shared experience of having a child and some potentially with another loved one who's struggling with substance use. And that's a really big task. So I'm glad that you are up for (laughs) the challenge. Um, But let's just take a little bit of a a trip back in time to give people context for who you are and um, all why you bring so much um, talent and why you're so highly qualified um, to do what you're doing. So maybe you could just share as much of your story as you're um, comfortable doing about your family some of the struggles that you had, and then we'll talk about what's what's going on now. Does that sound good? All right. All right. Well, I'm native Oklahoman. I be, uh, I grew up in a, a newspaper family. My my family, my grandfather and my brother, my dad had seven siblings, and there were four boys and three. My grandfather and three of the four boys ended up in the newspaper business, uh, weekly newspaper. Well. Uh, three, three of those ended up in weekly newspapers. My one of my uncles used to work for various newspapers. I think the last newspaper he worked for was the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Uh, but I, I grew up in in a communications background, and so then when I went to college, I uh, I actually majored in speech and public address. But I have minors in journalism and English and and things that are related to communications. I was a uh, teacher both in high school and um, very briefly in elementary school early in my career. In spe- I have a minor in special education as well, but uh, most of my teaching career was at the high school level and also at the community college level. And then I went to work uh, in 1991. I went to work for the Oklahoma Education Association in communications. I was the editor back then. It was a tabloid newspaper. And then few years later, we began to, uh, you know, different organizations are having websites. Why don't you have a website? (laughs) And so I helped OEA get uh, the first website going back in about 1995. And then I had a wonderful opportunity to work in communications, media relations, public relations, uh, organizing and training for Uh, three other state affiliates of the National Education Association, the one in Massachusetts, one in Tennessee, one in in California. And so that's that um, I'm I'm in a second marriage, but we've celebrated 32 married uh, 32 years this year. I have a stepdaughter. Thank you. I have a stepdaughter and a stepson. Um, I have a remaining I have a, a son who's living and my youngest son is the son that we had issues with related to substances. And I now know that he uh, started experimenting around with uh, pot and different things like that when he was in uh, actually in junior high. And because he was not a 
a custodial child all the time. I, I had him some, you know, on weekends and a lot of time during the summer. But as you know, they're very adept at hiding things even when they're living with you 24-7. And so I didn't really become aware that Chris had developed a serious problem with substances until after he had graduated from high school. And then by that time, he was legally an adult. And, you know, the complications that come with that. I mean, we you know, even there were even if kids are still living in your home, you know, you can't often, uh, you know, make them do what you want them to do. But at least you have a little bit more leverage, usually. <laughs> but because Chris had uh, was out on his own and was working, uh, you know, I would I would find out sometimes secondhand, you know, what was going on, what he was into, and it was just. Pardon me. It was just um, a long history of trauma. Uh, he was he was in courtrooms. He was in emergency rooms. He was in someone else's living room, sleeping on the couch. Uh, it was just uh, you know a nightmare. And I I just didn't. We you now we had generational alcoholism in our family, but we had never dealt with drugs and. Uh, and I didn't use drugs as a young person myself. And so I didn't know. I, I, I was just like we, like a deer in the headlights, you know. And my thought was, well, there are treatment programs and we will find a treatment program and we will get him into a treatment program and then everything will be okay. <laughs> yes. And and but of course what I know now is that you know to to go through a treatment program is kind of like someone being in a serious car accident and they're in the emergency room to take care of the critical needs and to see what it is you know you may have to have your you may have to have a cast you may have to have a crutch you may have to have a walker whatever it is that you need when when you're dismissed from uh, emergency treatment, and then the difficult part is learning to live with all those adaptations. And um, and so, and frankly, I uh, the first couple of times that he went into treatment, uh, I kind of manipulated him to get him there, you know. And I another thing that I know now is that uh, unless they have unless they have come to a place where they realize that they need to get treatment, um, it's it's not going to be effective. And it wasn't in his case. And and then, you know, I was I was in denial too much of the time. I, I just thought, well, it was something that he could quit, you know, and I couldn't understand why he was putting himself through all this trauma and why he was putting us through all this trauma. And one of the many things that I have learned, you know, I've learned so much more uh, over the last several years. Uh, and I don't know, it, it, I, I, I will admit that part of it was I I wasn't looking for, the, I wasn't looking in the right directions, you know. And then I think there is so much more that is available now. Uh, in, in, unfortunately, I think the opioid, opioid epidemic and so many overdose deaths has caused um, you know, I think, you know, 20 years ago, people who had kids who were using drugs were aware of all this, and people were aware of it peripherally, but I think it has affected 
so many people now that there is a growing awareness that we need to be doing more. And so, you know, more is available. But Chris, um, he got in uh, six years ago uh, in September. He uh, he had he was back in treatment. He had gotten in trouble with law. He shoplifted for uh, you know pay for his habit, and uh, he was facing uh, jail time. And so, uh, Oklahoma, where we live, has a really good uh, drug court system. And so Chris was able to, through the drug court system, have an opportunity to go back into treatment. Uh, and uh, and then if he successfully completed the treatment and then after being in treatment, he would have gone to something like a halfway house and would have, you know, demonstrated, you know, he would have had a, a caseworker. He would have been expected to go to meetings. He would have been expected to get a job. And Chris never had trouble getting a job. He he was really uh, he he started working in the food industry when he was in high school, and and really developed to the point that he was really a good competent sous chef, and and had some responsible positions in some in places like Portland and Boston, and you know different places. So he he would have been able to get a job, pay back his fines and fees, and and that sort of thing. And and uh, he was doing so well in this treatment because I think. I think that he had dealt with it so long and had gone through so much trauma that he was tired of it at this point. And I think that the, I think that the, you know, possibility of going to jail was the wake up call that he needed. And so it was his decision uh, to do the treatment and he was doing really well. And, uh, you know, about three and a half months into it, he had reached a point where he could check himself out to go across to get, cigarettes from a convenience store or snacks or whatever and we will never know what uh, triggered him or motivated him to not come back to the treatment center and uh, we know now that he overdosed the next it was a friday evening uh, it was after a step meeting and he checked himself out and he didn't come back and we did not find out until the following monday what had happened because when he, he overdosed the next morning, Saturday morning at six o'clock, and he was in um, he was in the uh, maintenance room of uh, of an apartment building that he used to use sometimes. Though sometimes when he was out on the streets, uh, and he had made friends, he told us that he had made friends with the maintenance worker, and the maintenance worker was kind and would let him stay in the maintenance room. Now. Whether or not uh, the maintenance worker had any in, impact on in terms of helping him get his roads, we don't know. But uh, he didn't have his phone. He didn't have his wallet. And so it, uh, because he had been part of the criminal justice system, they were able to identify him through his fingerprints. And, and it was Monday then before they contacted us. And, of course, uh, that is everyone whose child is using drugs worst night nightmare but uh, thankfully i had uh, a few years before that i had gone through two major depressions myself because i uh, it had gotten so bad that i could no longer deny that it it, it was a serious problem and a dangerous problem and 
my anxiety over his use and my guilt and shame over feeling that I hadn't, you know, or I had taken too long to come to the understanding of how serious is, is that it was. I, I was just in a really bad shape myself. The first time I was able to, I got, I got some counseling, was able to kind of get a grip on things. But then it was three or four years later when we had moved back to Oklahoma and he was back living in Oklahoma. And I saw really for the first time uh, on a, I mean, we didn't see him every day, but we were in we were in the greater Oklahoma City metropolitan area, and we saw him frequently. And so we were, I was aware of what what was going on and what it was doing to him, and it terrified me. And so the second time I went into a depressive spin, I, it was accompanied by panic attacks, and I had. A panic attack one day on Interstate 35 going to work almost had a serious wreck. And that was my wake-up call that uh, I was in, in, in a different way, but I was in as bad a shape as Chris was. And that if I didn't do something that I was going to be, it was going to be damaging to me, my health-wise. And, and then how could I help not only him, but, you know, be a husband to my wife and a father to our other three children and a grandfather to our grandchildren. And so that was the point at which I got really involved in Al-Anon. I got involved in therapy again. I, I, I had a course of cognitive behavior therapy that gave me really difficult <laughs> opportunity to take a real look at the things that terrified me and explore them and come to an understanding that I I could not control his behavior. That and Al-Anon helped me realize that his journey was his journey and that I couldn't control that. I couldn't fix him. I couldn't make him get well. I couldn't, uh, what the best thing that I could do would be to try to get as well myself as I could so that and then also, as I got involved with the partnership to end addiction, uh, I became a volunteer peer parent coach through the partnership to end addiction, which, as you know, uh, uses the craft model, which um, in a nutshell teaches parents how to get control, take care of themselves to the point where they can control, you know, not completely control, but yeah. but you can learn how to moderate your emotional uh, dysfunction so that when the phone rings, you don't freak out and start passing. You take, you know, you find a quiet place and you take a few breaths and you pause and you say, okay, this is what we're dealing with now. What's What can I do in this situation? What can I not do in this situation? And, and it allows it allows you as a parent or a loved one to uh, self-regulate yourself so that you can, to the best of your ability, given the situation, uh, respond calmly, respond uh, compassionately. And, and then if the, if the child is in a situation or makes a decision that they want to get well, then, and, and it also teaches you to maintain connection with them and, and, and emphasize the loving relationship. You know, what we are so frustrated at times as parents 
what we're so frustrated about is that we we learned that we can't make them do what we want them to do. Right, know? right. And we can't, you know, and, and we can't fix that. But what we can fix is our relationship with them. And I never, you know, I heard some things early on, you know, you need to you need to let them hit bottom. You need to detach from them. You need to, you know, let them get miserable enough that they're going to get well. Even, you know, there were some tools of thought that, you know, you just have a conversation with them and say, you know what, you pack your bags and you uh, hit the road or do whatever you need to do. And when you get back, when you decide that you want to get well, will be here. Well, I, I could never do that. Yeah. Uh, but, but we, but I did have to learn to set some boundaries that if, you know, if you're going to use hard drugs that are, um, that it's possible that a drug deal is going to go bad and someone's going to show up here, you know, we can't, we can't live like that. Right, and, right. and, and if, you know, the decision is yours, if you want to continue, uh, you know, some of the times he was able to, you know, pay for an apartment and live on his own, but then sometimes because of different things, he wasn't able to. And there were periods when he lived with us and lived with his mom and stepdad. And we both sets of parents came to a place where we realized that uh, we had to take care of ourselves. And he has a, he has a daughter who is now 13 and she was resident with him. And so we just had to tell him, you know, we don't, we don't feel safe with you living here under these circumstances. I am really excited to tell you about a study group we're offering for the book Beyond Addiction. This is the book I talk about frequently, and it is hands down the most comprehensive source of information on understanding substance use, addiction, motivation, and what makes people want to change. It's a book that will help you as a parent start to make a positive impact in your home and also to start feeling better yourself. The book is so full of information that it can be a bit overwhelming if you're also going through a crisis or if your brain is just on overload. So starting November 7th, 2022, we are hosting a six-week Beyond Addiction study group that will walk you through each chapter and section of the book with a guide. It's going to be led by a craft certified coach, Dina Canazaro, who is a battle-tested parent herself and will give you really practical insights and nuggets of wisdom from her knowledge of the book and from her applying this approach in real life. Again, we start on November 7th, 2022, and you can learn more about the study group at brendazane.com forward slash beyond addiction. And I hope we'll see you there. You know, I, I began to learn that the best way that 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 I could help Chris was to stay in contact with him, to stay in loving contact with him. And so even on those times when he was out there, uh, I would stay in contact, contact with him by phone. I would text him. Sometimes he would answer. Sometimes he wouldn't. Right. Uh, but sometimes he would let me, you know, take him to lunch or take him to breakfast or whatever. And so I had done... I had come to a place where I realized that Chris's, like I said, Chris's journey was his journey, and that if I let my terror about what he was doing uh, debilitate me, then not only was he not living a good life, I wasn't living a good life either, and neither was I in a place 
to help him if he decided that he wanted to get well. And so when he when he did overdose, it was heroin and fentanyl. I don't think I, you know, we, we won't know, but you know, he could, he had been in treatment long enough that the drugs were out of his system long enough that if he used the level of drugs he was using when he went into treatment, it could have been fatal. Right. But then of course, even if that wasn't the case, the, the fentanyl could have been fatal. Yeah. Uh, we were devastated. Of course, that's the worst thing that I think a parent can contemplate is the death of their child but the work that i had done to try to help him get well if he decided to get well also put me in good stead to be able to come along on the journey of grief and and the way that i came to that i could best deal with the trauma of his substance use and then subsequently the trauma of his death was to try to help other people that were desperate and lost and terrified like I was. And if I could help them, that it would not not only help me along my journey, but it would give meaning to Chris's struggle and his death. So yeah. that's kind of our story. Well, there's so much there. And I just, um, you know, obviously the the loss of your son is just so unimaginable. And I think it's, it is every parent's worst nightmare, obviously, mm-hmm. to get that phone call. And so what I'm constantly amazed by is the resilience that people like you have to take that and say, I don't want this to happen to to someone else and I'm going to do whatever I can. But I want to go back to how you talked about how you were almost as sick as him, obviously in a different way. And, you know, when we talk about dads and fathers and stepfathers and um you know male caregivers Mm -hmm. it seems that there's this almost like a man code of i'm not going to talk about it everything's fine in my family i'm going to put on this you know kind of armor and i'm going to go to work and i'm going to do what i have to do but clearly inside you were dying right you're just so sick so when what how do you see that playing out even today has that changed since you were going through this or are you seeing the same thing with the guys you work with well uh, you know some of the people the, the people that i work with are generally people who have gotten so miserable themselves that they're reaching out for something you know i mean like i said it took me having a major clinical depression and panic attacks and almost having a wreck on the highway to realize, you know, you're, you're not okay. You're not dealing with this. You know, you, I think, uh, and I, and I do think, I'm not going to say it's any more difficult for, for women, um, for men than it is for women, but, but there are, there are differences, I think, in the way that we respond because, and, and again, this is, you know, talking in generalities, uh, but in general, I think in our culture, the man is expected to be the strong one. Right. And the man, you know, it, you, you've got to be brave and you've got to be strong and, and it's not appropriate for you to show your emotions. And uh, especially if the emotion is uh, crying or, or expressing pain or expressing inability to do something. And um, and I think that that's, uh, that's still pretty much, you know, you, you tough it up. I mean, you look at, I mean, 
just this is just one example, and I'm and I'm not down on the military at all. I saw something the other day that made me think of this, this young man that was training to be a Navy SEAL and he died. They had they have something that they call Hell Week, where they go through all this grueling stuff, which I understand they need to do that because those are going to be the situations that they face if they're, you know, if they become a SEAL and they're they're trying to defend our country and they're going to be under really difficult conditions. But he had pneumonia. They know his his uh, the autopsy showed that he he had pneumonia when he was going through that, and there were other soldiers or other recruits there that were concerned about him and trying to help him, and and they were rebuffed by the people that was doing that training. And then even when the training was over, nobody called a physician or anything. And there's an invest there's an ongoing investigation now. Uh, by the U.S. government, they're going to look at SEAL training. And again, I'm not knocking the SEALs. I'm not knocking the military. Right. I mean, you look at it um, here in here in Oklahoma. Uh, uh, oh, no, it wasn't. It was, uh, I don't remember which football team it was, but a doctor's been reprimanded because their, their uh, quarterback got, uh, you know, um, a head injury. And okay, them to go back and play, you know, and uh, and I just think um, I, I I just think that's part of our culture, yeah. And and so it, it it you know, and dads, it's like you know, we're the ones that are supposed to fix it, and the moms are the ones that are the nurturers. We I was talking about, in fact, I was talking about this the other evening with a, a small group of dads that we have as a, as a beta for um, the woods, which you can describe in, in a minute. But we were talking uh, about the fact that, uh, you know, uh, mothers are the ones that are, you know, take the kids to the doctors. Usually mothers are the ones that usually show up or, uh, you know, take care of enrolling their kids in school and making sure they have all the supplies and, you know, the dads, the dads, my job is to, pay for all the stuff that you're going to buy them, you know, and, and then mother, and I know this from my own experience as, as a high school teacher, it was generally mothers that showed up for the, you know, we would have a night to come talk about your kid's progress. And sometimes both parents would come, but it was very rare for a dad to come by himself. So, you know, again, we're talking in generalities and I right, know that there, right. are single, there are single dads out there that are doing it all, yeah. but in general, in yeah. general. Yeah. It's so, it's so sad because I, you know, you and I both know the, the pain. And if somebody's listening to this, they are clearly also feeling that burden of knowing yeah. that your child is so at risk and to not yeah. be able to express that, you know, to a friend or a coworker and to really just have yeah. to put on the facade that everything's okay is just so toxic to our systems as you yeah. found out. Yeah. And, yeah. and dads really, I wonder if there's also a sense of, well, and I know this from, from some of the work that we did in putting together the woods is that there can be the sense of helplessness of, I have this massive problem going on in my family with my son or my daughter, or my step child or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. And I can't do anything about it. And that helplessness yeah. just layers on top of the fear and the anxiety. And what I love about craft, and you talked about it a little bit, is it gives 
dads in particular who are looking for something like give me something tangible to do about this yeah. it gives you a construct and it gives you a language that Absolutely. can help move things yeah. in a better yeah. direction yeah and brenda what i just thought of was you know even uh, and and I th- again, I think things are, are getting incrementally better every year in, in, in this way. But uh, when we came back to Oklahoma eight, eight years eight years ago, about eight years ago, and I discovered how how bad Chris was and what a problem he had, I did go to some places. I did find some places here in the area, and I and I thought I'm just gonna, you know, because it's so difficult. Uh, to do anything really by phone. And I thought, I'm just going to show up to some of these places and ask them what I can do. And in most instances, what I was met with was, you know, we really, your son's an adult and we really can't, I mean, you just need to get him here. You know, you need to get him here. And it was like, well, if I could get him here, then that, you know, my so, problem would be solved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So even when, even when a, a, a father decides, you know, I'm going to take this bull by the horns, you know, and do something about it. Uh, if you, you run up against roadblocks and I'll say this too, and I don't mind saying this because I'm, a, I will say that I am of a quote unquote mature age. Uh, you know, my, my dad, and and the way he was raised, it was just the dad's job was to come in and be the disciplinarian. And he, and he, if you didn't do what he was what he wanted you to do, you were going to get punished for it, or you were going to get cussed, cussed out for it, or you were going to, you know, you were going to there were going to be health pay, you know. And right. uh, and then when you run up with something like this, and you try, you know, I'm just going to say, blaming and shaming and guilt and punishment. I mean, even when we just think about those words in 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 the abstract, it ought to be obvious to us that that that's not going to work. Right. But it's just it's just the pattern, you know that that certainly I grew up with. Thankfully, my um, I, I have a, a stepdaughter and a stepson and a son, and thankfully, and they're in their early forties. It's different. You know, so I, I think that that's changing. Yeah. But I think if you're a father and you grew up, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s and maybe even into the 70s, you probably were raised where, you know, children were supposed to be quiet and do what they were told. And if they didn't, they got punished. But that doesn't work with addiction. Yeah, it doesn't really work with anything. It doesn't like, really work with anything. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. especially somebody, and we talk about this when we teach this in the craft approach, which is if you meet somebody with aggression and confrontation, you are going to get that right back. And so yeah. I think that's yeah. what's so great about craft. And, and maybe I can ask you, because what I hear from the moms in the stream is my male co-parent spouse partner ex won't get on board with craft because it feels kind of soft it feels very permissive it feels kind of squishy what would you say to that to a guy who's like okay i've been doing this other thing and it's not really working i've heard about this craft approach i don't know like what would you say to somebody like that well i'll just say that it works i mean uh, i you know, I, 
one another thing that I did uh, coming out of all that is I uh, I enjoyed being a, a volunteer peer parent coach with the partnership to end, end addiction so much that I decided when I retired from my quote unquote real job, um, I wanted to do that on a more formal basis. And so I went through a two year pro- certification program where I'm now an internationally international coaching federation certified life coach. I have a specialty for working with families around addiction issues from the Bomb Training Institute. And and so I've been doing some private coaching uh, and and both with the volunteer coaching with uh, the partnership and then in my own private practice coaching. It 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 works, you know, and 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 sometimes I will have to say to people, you know. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but the degree to which you feel like that you're going to control, I think that's part of it, Brenda. I think, mm-hmm. I think men, and it's not just men, but I, but I think in our culture, it's probably more, there's a, an extra layer of it for men that we're just supposed to, we're supposed to be in control of things. We're right. supposed to be in control of our jobs. We're supposed to be able to con- control things. And it's really difficult for men to give up the idea that they're going to be able to control the situation. And I think, you know, I just encourage them to give it a try. You know, uh, sometimes I'll just say, well, you know, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that what you're trying is not working. Would you at least consider this, you know? But but basically what it boils down to is you've got to get a control. You've got to get a grip on yourself yeah. so that you're not freaking out. And then just give it a try because you know what it what it really involves is uh have learning how to set healthy boundaries but how to have a conversation with your child based upon what they for for too many years my conversation with chris was why in the hell are you doing this you know what what can you not see about this that's not destructive I, i look back now and and I and I had begun, I had begun to learn this, and I had begun to be able to do it some. But you know, how about Chris? Help me understand what what this is doing for you. Mm-hmm. Help me understand what you're getting from this. What is it that you you feel like that this helps? How this helps you? And, and also, you know, what are your dreams? You know, what what are your goals in life? You know, what 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 kind of life would you really like to have if you could just if you could just have the life that you desired, what would it be like? And then, and then foster that relationship so that they don't, when they see you coming, know that they're going to get a criticism or know that they're going to get some, you know, this is what you need to do rather than, son, what is it that you want to do and how can I help you get there? And can we both agree that, that drugs are probably not going to be the thing that's going to help you get there. But I understand, you know, at least I understand what you're doing, but how can I help you find some other things that would provide what it is that you need and what you want that's not drugs? Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of what the craft method is like. And it mm-hmm. does sound kind of soft, but I'm telling you, it's powerful. Yeah, it's, it's powerful. so powerful. It's so powerful. And if you haven't been if you haven't had that kind of a relationship with your child, it feels very different, right? And this is yes, true for moms yeah. and dads because yeah. I think moms a lot of the time are 
we just are trying to make everybody happy. We just want our kids to be happy. We yeah. want everybody in the world to be happy. Yeah, and we're yeah, just like, yeah, happy, yeah. happy, happy. And so when we see our kids sad, we're like, oh, don't feel sad. Feel this instead. And and like mm-hmm. you said, for the dads, I think that loss of control and realizing mm-hmm. I cannot make this kid do anything. <laughs> and so it becomes... What I love about craft is it's um, a very strategic way to change and shift that relationship that might feel soft and squishy at first. But when you start to see the doors open and you start to see them respond, you realize how strategic it really is. And I, yeah. and I think yeah. that's, like you said, just try and then yeah. see what happens. Also, like you said with Chris... So ultimately, you know, you didn't get to see the um, the long-term benefits of craft. But what you said, I think, is so critical, which is I still had a relationship with him. Yeah. Because you can go through this and you can be distant and you cannot talk and you can completely yeah. lose a relationship. Yeah. Or even if they continue in their use, at least you're talking, at least you're having those dialogues. Yes. yes. And that is gold, right? That's. Yes. Well, I mean, even it really, even if they continue to use, isn't it better to have, have the kind of, and I think that in some people's minds that that becomes uh, excusing their use or justifying their use or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you when they're an adult, they're going to do what they're going to do. And isn't it better to have at least a relationship with them so that you're not antagonistic with each other? Now, sometimes you do have to set a boundary, but it's not about punishing them. It's about letting them know, son, we love you with our whole heart. And if you, d- if you decide that you want to get well, we will do whatever we can to help you get well. But if you choose to use, we don't feel safe. And so you're going to have to live somewhere else. And that's not, I mean, he didn't like hearing that. Right. But that's so different from you little SOB, pack your bags and get out and don't come back, you know. Yes. Um, And, uh, you know, and like you said, I didn't get to see the, the full fruits of craft, but I, but I, I did get involved so that, that we uh, we were able to have even when he was out there we were able to have a relationship that wasn't antagonistic and i could take him to breakfast and i could take him to dinner and i could see if he needed to buy a new pair of shoes if he needed new shoes i could get him shoes you know and we could we could celebrate his birthday you know and and i'm just going to tell you um one of the last, when he went into treatment, he was in there, like I said, for about three and a half months, and he had reached a place in the treatment where his mind was clear, you know, and we were able, to, he was able to check out, we could take him to dinner, it was even reaching the point where we could take him out for a weekend. In fact, we were, we had hoped to take him that weekend, um, we, uh, our other son had, had done a destination wedding somewhere with just a couple of people. And then it was the reception for, uh, our, our other son's wedding. And we were going to check Chris out and he could have gone to that with us. And of course, when he wasn't there, we were very concerned. So when we got that call on Monday, we didn't expect that it was going to be good, but we didn't, I didn't know 
well, I, you know, I had reached enough. I, I had gone far enough in the in this that I knew that there was a possibility that something really bad could have happened. But you never know. He could have skipped state with someone and gone back. He had. He used to have a girlfriend in Tennessee. He could. We didn't know for sure, but we had reached a point where we could we could really talk to one another. And and we were one of the last things. One of the last conversations that I had with Chris was. Um, both of us apologizing to each other for things that had been said, things that had been done, things that should have been done that weren't done, and and just really expressing love to each other. And one of the last things that Chris told me was, Dad, I didn't always like what you said. I didn't always like what you wanted me to do, but I never, ever doubted that it was motivated out of love. Mm -hmm. And I'll sure take that as a, as a memory now that he's gone, other than me telling him to get out. Yes, absolutely. That is such a important distinction. And I of, think craft allowed me, I think craft allowed us to, to get to that point in a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I hear that from parents and I also hear that from people who are in long-term recovery they say, because parents will say, oh, well, I think if I hold this boundary, my kid's going to think I don't love them. Mm -hmm. And what I have heard unanimously is that is not true. The kids right. know you love them. They're going to tell yeah. you. The words coming out of their mouth might not yeah. match, yeah. but inside, they know that you love them. They know that you're yeah. doing that because you love them. Well, and Brenda, they know what they're doing to you, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even though... I think of, even though Chris didn't like that, I think he understood why we had to do that. Yeah. Now he may, you know, at the time, he might not have articulated it to us. Right. But I think he got it, you yes. know, because of the manner, because I had learned that it wasn't about punishing him. It was about, it was about setting a relationship that we needed and, and he loved us and he knew we needed that. Yeah. Well, this is um, all such good context for for you and for the guys that are going to be in the woods. We're opening that up so so men can join, and we're going to be you know really focused on making sure that people understand the woods is is completely separate from social media. So this is not joining a Facebook group. This is not joining anything that's anywhere related. It's, we just kind of say it's its own digital island. And, you know, the, the beautiful thing is that you're going to be able to be teaching guys craft, talking right. about boundaries, like what is a boundary and how do you do it and set it lovingly versus the, you know, kind of um, negative uh, approach that you Ultimatums, ultimatums. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to be able to just share and just find a place where it's like, it's okay to talk about all this and nobody cares, you know, you don't have to justify anything you don't have to uh like i i would always try to kind of minimize what was going on when i would talk mm -hmm, to people mm -hmm. you don't have to do that here so this is that place where you can get those skills right mm -hmm. to act to be actively doing something so you're not helpless but also just finding a like a comfortable couch or i think you you yeah. talk about sitting around the campfire and just sharing stories and just supporting yeah. each other in a way that I don't know is happening anywhere else. No, I don't either. I think, uh, I think there's still, 
unfortunately, it's 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 getting better, but there's still stigma. There's mm-hmm. still shame around this. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there is like you know we don't want other people to know that we're going through. Well, and you know, I mean, I I know someone here where we live that uh, when they're when their teenage son uh, started using drugs and it started causing problems, they lost their peer group. They lo- the parents lost their peer group. Right. And it wasn't because it wasn't because the other parents didn't like them. It was just like we we really don't want our kids to be around your kid, mm-hmm. you know, because he's using drugs. And yeah. so the, there is still some of that. Uh, but I I uh, when I got really involved in Al-Anon. I didn't really choose a men's only group because that I, I, I didn't, I was uncomfortable. I, I think because I was in the teaching field for many, many, many years and probably 80 or 90% of, of, of teachers are women. Uh, I, I was comfortable working in an environment, you know, with a lot of women. Uh, so I didn't seek out a men's only group, but uh, the reason I chose it was because of the time of day and the proximity to my work that I could go to it conveniently. But I did find that it was really refreshing to be among a group of men because we all grew up in this culture that, uh, you know, makes it more difficult to deal with, difficult with emotions. And man, when you're dealing with a child who is, you know, even a child who's grossly misbehaving, there's a lot of emotions involved. And and we're not taught, um, I don't think that we're taught in this culture uh, how to deal with anger. And and men, uh, it, I, I think because of that, like you said, other, the, the toxic masculinity, men are supposed to be tough, men are supposed to be fighters, men are supposed to push through, men are supposed to gut it out. And and I think that um, to, to be in a group of men that were raised in that environment who I just felt like a, that I I just found my place because everyone understood I didn't have to I didn't have to try to be strong I didn't have to try to have the answer I didn't it, it's just for men for for me and I think for other men that I've talked to who have found a group of men uh, who uh, are going through this uh, it, it's just like oh. I, I, you know, I, I can just be real here. Yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be great to have that space um, with you there and with others, other coaches, because having a mentor to, to walk this path with you, mm-hmm. I think is just so vital. And, yeah. and to find a, a, and what I love about craft too that we haven't really said is that it is evidence based. So this is there's yes. so many studies, and we will post all of the research and everything. Right. That if what you're doing isn't working, why wouldn't you look for an evidence based approach that has been right. proven through research over and over and over to move right. people towards getting help for substance use? And it's upwards right. over seventy percent. I think it's closer yeah. to seventy five percent of yeah. of the time if you use this craft approach consistently in the right way that 75% of the time, the person that you're loving on and working with will seek help. And so I think that's incredibly powerful. Well, and it's, and, and it's also healthy for us as the parents, Yes, because when we are uh, operating out of frustration and anger and guilt and shame, 
it, it, it does to us what gave me two major depressions and panic attacks. Yeah. You know, so up- not only, not only is it, it, is it more likely to lead, uh, if, if circumstances happen, uh, that, that uh, make them decide that I'm tired of this or like in Chris's instance where he was facing jail. Um, if circumstances happen that, that say, okay, you know, you know, and we know the stages of change are, you know, usually something mitigating has to happen before someone decides to make a major change about anything. But if, if they decide that they want to make a change, then craft allows us to be in a healthy place to be able to help them at that point rather than just tied up in knots ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited to get the the woods open. I I was trying to think of a, um, because the woods don't really open. You just sort of walk into them. So I was trying to think of a really clever way to phrase that, but I couldn't think of one. So the woods are available to walk into now. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I like Into the Woods. I I don't know that Stephen Sondheim's uh, musical Into the Woods. I, that's one of my real favorite musicals. And I thought, you know, it's time for guys to come into the woods. <laughs> it is. Well, we talk about, um, and this is how we kind of came up with it. Is, you know, we'll talk with people, and they'll say, I'll say, you know, how's it going? Well, we're not out of the woods yet. So absolutely. We, ho- absolutely. we hope that we yeah. hope that men will come in, and that eventually yeah. they will go out. That would be the best. Yeah possible thing so well yeah, thank you for yeah. for being there as the leader and the host and um we'll put a link in the show notes for guys to join but you can go to members.thewoodscommunity.org and again we'll put a, a link in the show notes for that and you can meet bill you can sit around the campfire and just talk about this stuff learn these skills it's it's going to be amazing so we're excited to to have you so thank you so much for doing yeah. it there's always hope, Brenda. There is. There's a, there's always hope. There is. You know? And and there's and there's hope for life after the worst that can happen to you. You know, I want to close. Uh, you you said all the things that really happened that brought you to this place very early in my life uh, when I was in my twenties. I had an opportunity to teach school in Australia for a few years, and it was uh, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, but it was kind of a disconcerting experience as well because. You know, um, even though they're an English-speaking country, they're a very different country, and they have a very different background, a very different history, very different society in some ways. And so it really gave me an opportunity, which was kind of uncomfortable at the time, to it's like to really re-examine a lot of different things. And what do I really think about this? What do I really think about that? And I, fortuitously, I came across a book by Victor Frankl, Dr. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. And he wrote this book out of his experience as a concentration camp uh, survivor. He survived Auschwitz. He was a Jewish psychiatrist, and he was sent to Auschwitz, and all of his other family were killed. And the only reason that he lived is because he was on the detail that took the bodies from the crematorium to to the crematoriums, from the gas chambers to the crematoriums. And he, he, through that awful, horrible experience, he came up with what then he survived. And he, uh, he, hit, he was then a successful psychiatrist and very influential and an author. But he said, you know, in that circumstance, I came face to face with the fact that the 
only thing that we as human beings have control over is our ability to decide how we're going to react to whatever happens to us. And, you know, I fell off the wagon many times during my life, but that's been a touch point that I've always come back to. And so even if the worst happens to you, uh, you have the opportunity to decide to try to make something out of it. And that's what I'm trying to do. And you have, and you have, and you'll continue to, to impact so many people through this. So Thanks. thank you Thanks. so much. All right. Okay, that is it for today. If you would like to get the show notes for this episode, you can go to brendazane.com forward slash podcast. All of the episodes are listed there, and you can also find curated playlists there. So that's very helpful. You might also want to download a free ebook I wrote. It's called Hindsight, Three Things I Wish I Knew When My Son Was Misusing Drugs. It'll give you some insight as to why your son or daughter might be doing what they are. And importantly, it gives you tips on how to cope and how to be more healthy through this rough time. You can grab that free from brendazane.com forward slash hindsight. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. And I hope that these episodes are helping you stay strong and be very, very good to yourself. And I will meet you right back here next week.